Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. John Stott wrote, If the church is central to God's purpose, it must surely also be central in our lives. How can we take so lightly what God takes so seriously? The church should be central in our lives because it was central in Jesus' life. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. There was a time in American history when you could find a busy church on every street corner. But today, more and more churches are shutting their doors for good. So what exactly has changed? Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress explains that church attendance is no less important today than it was 2,000 years ago. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Jets take off from airports every day with tourists traveling to Israel. But there's nothing quite like joining like-minded Christians to experience the Holy Land together. I'm hoping you'll join me on the upcoming Pathway to Victory Bible Prophecy Tour of Israel. On this exclusive journey, we'll not only see the key biblical sites, but we'll stop along the way and open our Bibles to reflect on their connection to our Christian faith as well. We're departing in just a few months. The dates are April 25th through May 5th, and we still have a few spaces open, so don't hesitate. Find out the itinerary and reserve your spot today by going to ptv.org. In a progressive world that's constantly second-guessing our historic Christian values, sometimes it's hard to know where to draw the line. For example, how do we respond when somebody questions the credibility of the Bible? And what do we say to a son or daughter who pushes back on the true gospel and believes that there are many roads that lead to God? Well, in my new book called What Every Christian Should Know, I'll equip you with rock-solid answers on 10 core beliefs of historic Christianity. This may be the most important book you'll read this year. It's brand new, it's only been out a few weeks, and it's already a national bestseller. And a copy is yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Now, let's step into our next study in this new teaching series. Today, I want to speak with you about God's sacred provision for believers. I titled today's message, What Every Christian Should Know About the Church. Robert Frost once said, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to let you in. (laughs) You know, that begrudging attitude seems to reflect the attitude a lot of people have about the church. If many Christians were forced to describe their relationship status with the church on social media, they would choose, it's complicated. Sometimes when people think about the church, they think about good experiences they've had. If they've spent any time in the church, they've had a good experience. Maybe it came through somebody who encouraged them after a great loss. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a pastor who led them to faith in Christ. They're grateful for the church. But at the same time, if you've spent any time in the church at all, you probably have been witness to petty disputes, power struggles, hypocritical Christians. My mom used to say the miracle of Christianity is that it survived the Christians. 
And that's true about the church. Today, we're going to look at the eighth historic belief of historic Christianity, the eighth pillar, if you would, of the Christian faith, and that is the church. Today, we're going to examine what the Scriptures say every Christian should know about the church. Now, I know some people are surprised that I would have picked the church as one of the ten pillars of historic Christianity. Most people think of the church as a peripheral issue. The reason it's peripheral in their mind is because it's peripheral in their life. The fact is, they think the church is just one other nice organization that wants your money and your time, but is on its way to extinction. And yet, as Ephesians 5.25 tells us, Christ loved the church, and He gave Himself up for her. And if you are a disciple of Christ, if you love Jesus Christ, you're going to have that same attitude about the church. Now, first of all, let's talk about the definition of the church. What do we mean when we talk about the church? The Greek word for church is ekklesia in Greek. It literally means called out ones. And the fact is that word church sometimes in the New Testament is used to refer to the universal church, all Christians, true Christians everywhere. I define the universal church as being composed of all people in heaven and on earth who have trusted in Christ for their salvation since the day of Pentecost. That's the universal church. It's invisible. Ephesians 3 talks about the entire family of God living in heaven and earth. Some of the membership of the universal church has already gone to heaven. Some is here on earth right now, but we're all one if we've trusted in Christ since the day of Pentecost. But the second usage of the word church is in reference to the local church. Now, you, like many Christians, might believe that the primary use of the word church in the Bible refers to the universal church, all Christians everywhere. We think that that's really the ideal, and we see the local church as kind of a necessary evil. We get enthralled by the idea of all Christians everywhere, but the local church, well, it's not quite the same. As one wag said, oh, to dwell with the saints above, that will be glory. But to worship with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> Again, we think of the local church as a necessary evil. Author Dorothy Sayers says that God has undergone three great humiliations in history. The first humiliation was the incarnation when God took on human form. The second humiliation was the crucifixion. But the greatest humiliation of all is the church. Dorothy Sayers says, in an awesome act of self-denial, God entrusted his reputation to ordinary people. And yet, God did choose the church. Here's the definition Dr. Charles Ryrie gives of the local church. Write it down. The local church is a group of baptized believers who have organized themselves for the purpose of doing God's will. 
Let's take each of those three phrases uh, for a further study. First of all, the church is composed of baptized believers. The church is for Christians only. Now, anybody can attend the church, but to be a member of the church, you must be a believer, somebody who's trusted in Jesus since the day of Pentecost. Now, the fact is the church has on its membership roles many non-Christians. We didn't design it that way. That's what happens. In fact, seated next to you right now may be an unchristian, a non-Christian. Don't look at that person right now. But trust me, Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares, the false wheat that were sown together. But ideally, the church should be composed of only believers. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, talking about the universal church, Paul said, for by or with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The universal church is only composed of true Christians. The local church ought to be that way as well. And by the way, it's not just believers, it's baptized believers. When you get to the book of Acts throughout the rest of the New Testament, there is not one example anywhere of somebody who was a Christian who was not baptized. And remember in our study of Acts chapter 2, we saw the order is always the same, believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Never was there a command to be baptized first and then believe later. There's not one instance of infant baptism. I use that word lightly, infant baptism. It's impossible to be uh, baptized by being sprinkled. The word baptized means to be immersed. If you, as a baby or as a young child, got sprinkled with water, you got wet, but you didn't get baptized. The Bible says we believe first and then we are baptized as a sign of our faith in Christ. This was baptized believers. They were what composed the local church. Secondly, not only is a group of baptized believers, but it's believers who have organized themselves. There is an organization, a God-given organization to the church. Now, occasionally I'll run into somebody, I'll ask them where they go to church. They say, well, we just haven't been able to find a church. Isn't that interesting of the thousands of churches? Somehow they haven't found one quite perfect enough for them. They said, we haven't been able to find a church, so we started our own church. I said, oh, really? Well, tell me about it. Well, we meet in our living room every other Sunday, a group of friends and a couple of family members, and we take turns reading the Bible, and we pray, and we do life with one another, and that's our church. I said, oh, well, uh, who's your pastor? Oh, well, we don't have a pastor. We don't want all that hierarchy stuff. My response is already the same. I said, well, you may have a nice fellowship group or a Bible study, but you don't have a church. If you don't have a pastor and you don't have deacons, you don't have a church. Because the Bible says a church designed by God has two offices in it that are approved by the congregation. We talked about that in Acts chapter 6. Remember the two offices of the church? The first office is the pastor. Every church is to have a pastor. Uh, the Greek New Testament uses three words to describe the same office of pastor. Sometimes the pastor is called the pastor, the shepherd, the poimen, referring to his job to care for the sheep. Sometimes he's called the presbyteros, the elder. That refers to the dignity of the office. Sometimes he's called the episkopos, the overseer, the ruler, the leader of the church, his, his duty to give direction to the church. 
Three different words, but it's all the same office. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, you see those three words being used interchangeably. I urge the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. That is the pastor. The second office in the church is the deacon. In Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2, the letter was written to the pastors, the overseers, and the deacons. In 1 Timothy 3, you have the qualifications for the overseer and the deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 tells us what those qualifications are. The word deacon, diakonon, means servant, minister. The office of the deacon was born out of the need for a group of men to take care of the practical needs of the congregation, the business responsibilities, the finances, caring for widows, preparing the Lord's Supper. Those are all things that are very important. So, who has the final say in the church? Is it the pastor? No. It is you, the congregation. Every biblical New Testament church was ultimately approved by the congregation. That doesn't mean the congregation votes on everything. The congregation vests some authority in the pastor, some in the deacons. But the congregation has the final say. Acts 6.5 says that the proposal to institute deacons was met with the approval of the whole congregation. A famous pastor once said, a New Testament church is pastor-led, deacon-served, and congregationally approved. That's what a New Testament church is. Baptized believers who have organized themselves, the third phrase is, in order to do God's will. Chuck Swindoll tells about a huge machine that had a number of wheels, cogs, pulleys, and conveyor belts. It had lights that would light up with a touch of the button. Somebody asked the inventor, what does your machine do? He said, absolutely nothing, but doesn't it run beautifully? You know, that's a great description of many churches. They're impressive, they're large, they've got great organization, but they've forgotten what they're supposed to be doing. A New Testament church is focused on doing God's will. What is God's will for the church? Go into all of the world and what? Mathetes, make disciples, not just converts, but fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's the unique mission of the church to go into the world and make disciples. And no other organization, either secular or Christian, has been given that mandate. That mandate was given to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk about the four activities of the church that contribute to the church fulfilling that purpose of making disciples. But let me just say something about the singular nature of this purpose. Many of you know the name Peter Drucker. If you go to business school, you know he is held out as the guru of modern management principles. Many people don't know that Peter Drucker was also a Christian. And I remember reading an interview with him one time when he was talking about the church, and he said, the church is the or only organization in the world that is focused on meeting people's needs on the other side of the grave. Every other organization is geared toward helping people on this side of the grave to do good things, to live healthy and productive lives, but only the church is focused on the other side of the grave. And he said the greatest danger for a successful organization, including the church, is to take on things that do not fit its 
purpose. And he uses this example. He said, if you go to the American Lung Association and you say to them, have you seen the frightening statistics that 97% of Americans have ingrown toenails? You know what the American Lung Association will say to you? They'll say, well, that's really bad, but our interest in people stops above the neck and below the navel. We're singularly focused on people's lungs. And he said, in the very same way, many people assume the church is supposed to take care of every need that's out there, every need that people have. And he said, effective churches have to learn to say no. But the effective ones do say no to good things, but good things that are not a part of their unique purpose statement. For example, this will shock some of you, but there's no mandate in the New Testament for the church to take care of the physical needs of people, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. Oh, you're going to point to Jesus and all. Every command, the few that talk about that, are talking about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to take care of the physical needs of our members who are in need. If you see a brother or sister in need, James says, we're to take care of them. But there is no mandate to go take care of the physical needs of the world. We are not a sanctified social agency. Only the church has been given the task of going into all the world and making disciples. Now, let's talk for a moment about the beginning of the church. We've talked about the definition of the church, baptized believers, organized to do God's will. Let's talk about the beginning of the church. The church has not always existed. We talk about Moses. He was never a member of the church. John the Baptist wasn't a member of the church. The church had a beginning time. Even in Jesus' day, the church was still future. Remember what he said in Matthew 16? Upon this rock, I will build my church. The church was born on the day of Pentecost. We went through this in our series on Acts, so I won't belabor it, but let me show you the birthday of the church, Acts 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. All the followers, 120 of them, were in that upper room. Remember, Jesus had told them to wait there. He said, John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So they were there waiting for that. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Later on, Peter would look back on this day and describe it as the day they received the baptism with the Holy Spirit of God. I've defined on your outline the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the supernatural act of God by which Christ immerses believers with the Holy Spirit, joining them to himself and to other Christians. They were waiting for the baptism with the Spirit, but since Acts chapter 2, Every Christian, the moment he is saved, is immediately baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. We don't have to wait for it, beg for it, barter with God for it. It is ours as part of our birthright as Christians. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 again says, for with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's how we became a part of the universal church. Now, let's talk about the activities of the church. What does the church do in order to reach its mission statement of making disciples? 
You have a description of the activities of the early church in Acts 2, beginning with verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. My very first sermon here 15 years ago was based on this passage. It was titled, A Church That Wins. And I use the word wins, W-I-N-S, as an acrostic for the four activities of the early church. Do you remember what those four components were? I didn't think you would. Neither did I, actually, until I went back to look at it. But as you look at this passage, here's what the early church did and what we ought to be doing as well. The W in wins stands for worship. Acts 2 says they were praising God together. Worship, worship. Psalm 34 verse 3 said, oh, let us magnify the Lord together and let us exalt his name. When we meet together for worship, and don't we have spectacular worship here at First Baptist Dallas, the purpose of worship, regardless of the music style, is to magnify God. To magnify something means to make something look bigger. You think, wait a minute, we're supposed to magnify God? Is it really possible to make God bigger? Remember, vision is a matter of perspective. For example, have you ever done this maybe as a child, take two nickels and put one into each eye and look up at the sky, and these two little nickels can block out the entire sun that is billions of times larger than the nickel. How is that possible? Vision is a matter of focus, what we're focusing on. Every day of the week, we are bombarded with problems in our family, in our work life, and a thousand other areas. And, and those problems are what the focus of our life is. And many times those problems block out our vision of God. There needs to be one day a week when we lay aside the concerns that we have and focus on God. Focus on Him. And when we do that, He regains His proper place in our life, his proper size in our life. If we focus only on our problems like those nickels, we're going to be filled with anxiety and worry and stress. There needs to be a time that we look at God and remember who he is, and that is the purpose of worship. As your radio pastor and friend, I hope you're attending a Bible-believing church that provides an environment for worship and spiritual nourishment for your entire family. To guide you, I'm going to say more about this essential topic on tomorrow's edition of Pathway to Victory. Plus, I've written a new book for you. It's called What Every Christian Should Know, 10 Core Beliefs for Standing Strong in a Shifting World. You see, the key to growing stronger in your relationship with God is getting better acquainted with His character. My book lays out 10 core doctrines that describe the very nature and character of God. 
This book makes an excellent choice for your small group Bible study or your Sunday school class. There's even a study guide available to you as well. My book, What Every Christian Should Know, is yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Before our time is out, I'd like to say a big thank you to our growing family of monthly supporters we call our Pathway Partners. Your consistent month-by-month giving is truly making a difference. For example, I heard from Sherry, who listens in Washington. She said, Pastor Jeffress, I stumbled upon your radio broadcast a few months ago as I began a new job with a 30-minute commute. Starting my day with your words has taken me in a new direction and a new understanding for being a child of Christ. Well, your feedback is an encouragement to us, Sherry. And now, friends, it's your turn. Would you be willing to join the team of Pathway Partners? Your monthly gift will allow us to pierce the darkness with the light of God's Word. Here's David to explain how you can become a Pathway Partner today. Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. You can sign up to become a Pathway Partner by visiting ptv.org. Just click on that link at the top of the page to join Pathway Partners. And when you give your first monthly partner gift or when you give a generous one-time gift, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Robert Jeffress called What Every Christian Should Know. Call us toll-free at 866-999-2965 or visit ptv.org. And when you give $75 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the What Every Christian Should Know teaching series. You'll get that along with a helpful study guide. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You could send your donation by mail if you'd like. Write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Join us again next time for Part 2 of the message, What Every Christian Should Know About the Church. That's coming up Wednesday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.